Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Timaibi Aganaba, Assistant Professor at Arizona State University's School for the Future of Innovation and Society, with a courtesy appointment at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Tim Eby has worked on a fascinating array of space issues on multiple continents, and today we have an extremely wide-ranging conversation about that work and its implications. I'll ask her about broad notions of space and society, the history, current status, and future of space governance, the Biden administration's steps on space policy, Richard Branson, and even Afrofuturist and African futurist music and art. This conversation was really fun. Stay with us. Okay, Tim, maybe Aganaba from Arizona State University. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's my pleasure. So, Timmy, we're going to talk today about uh, space governance and your work on space governance in a variety of uh, contexts. But we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on natural resource issues, or in this case, space resource issues. So what drew you into this field? So I have a long backstory, and the the, the long and short of it is basically that um, I went to law school in Nigeria, and when you graduate, you have to do a year's service for the government, for the country. And I was posted to the Nigerian Space Agency as one of the first hires in legal affairs and international cooperation. And one of the first tasks I had to do was research about looking at environmental liability regimes in areas beyond national jurisdiction and for ultra-hazardous activities such as maritime transportation of oil and nuclear power generation and look at how those liability regimes compared to the space liability regimes for the issue of space debris. So it was 14 years ago that I first started taking an environmental lens to looking at space activities. And then fast forward a few years later, I did my master's um, on that same topic. And then I did my postdoctoral fellowship on climate change law and really looking at what is the role of satellite technology and space technologies in the fight against climate change. So I've had lots of different experiences ranging a really long time. And it's just fascinating that the it's all come together now because the trend is towards space sustainability. So I think the environmental lens um, really highlights the topic really well. Yeah, that is so interesting. I would, uh, we could, I could ask you hours worth of questions about the <laughs> differences between liability for oil transport and, uh, and space debris. That's such a fascinating idea. Um, so as much as I want to uh, get diverted and ask you questions about that, um, I'd like to start us off uh, with kind of a couple of big picture questions. Um, one of them comes from a TED talk that I watched uh, that you gave a few years ago at ASU. Uh, or a TEDx talk, where you started off by asking the audience to close their eyes and picture what came to their mind when you said the word space and society. Um, so I thought it'd be cool to ask you that question. What comes to your mind's eye when you hear those two words? So it's really interesting because if you if you try and Google that, you won't really find much. So my title at Arizona State University is actually Professor of Space and Society. So I've really had some time to think about 
what are those two words put together? What does it actually mean? And what images come to mind? And the first thing that always comes to mind for me is that Earthrise picture that was taken by William Anders on the Apollo 8 mission, whereby they took this picture of the Earth rising from the moon's surface. And that picture is basically attributed to starting the environmental movement because it was the first time we really saw the fragility of Earth. And we really saw that... Earth is just this one bubble that we have to be so careful and conscious about. And I think when I when I think of that image, then it really, you know, connects us because it means that we are just one planet. We only have one planet that we can take care of. And that image really solidified and got that into the minds of everyone. So that's really what I think of when I think of space and society. Of course, there are all these other images that come to mind based on science fiction, kind of like of space settlements and seeing communities up in space, we're still pretty far from there. But those discussions are getting more and more mainstream, especially as Elon Musk is saying that he wants to take people to Mars by the end of this decade. But I think at the end of the day, that connection between space and society is essentially saying, what is the role of the individual? How do we connect all these big visions that we have to the societal issues that are going on? And space not being something that is too far away or surreal anymore. Right. That's so interesting. And I think we're going to touch on some more of those topics over the next 25 minutes or so as we as we keep talking. Um, but one more background question, which I, again, thought was fascinating about your background. You mentioned that you started your work on space in the Nigerian government. Um, and it might be surprising to some people that Nigeria has a space program or that other countries that might have relatively low per capita income uh, have space programs. So can you uh, just give us some background on the motivations for why uh, uh, countries like Nigeria or maybe countries, uh, in, you know, smaller island nations invest in space research and technology and exploration. So it's really fascinating. Um, during my PhD in Canada, I worked in a space consulting company. And one of the things that I had to do was track the global budget for space. So what were different countries spending in space? And we were tracking over 80 countries. And it's fascinating to see that the majority of those countries are actually developing countries. And the budgets really range from, of course, the US spending $40 billion a year on space, right down to a country like the Philippines spending $10 million. And each of those countries are calling themselves space countries. So so it's it's interesting because there's no one definition of what does it mean to be a space actor. There are different capacities and there are different levels with which people can come in. You know, uh, the big actors like the US, of course, have end-to-end -end capabilities such that they can independently run their space programs. But, you know, now that we have this miniaturization and, and all the innovations that have come and, and space being cheaper, um, people can engage in these activities for different purposes, um, for sustainable development. So because they want to be able to have more control over monitoring their borders or their fisheries, or perhaps like Nigeria that got into space because they realized that they needed independence for their telecommunications and their internet access and that it's it, it, it didn't make sense that Africa didn't have its own capacity in that domain. So I think just like the big players also saw space as something about 
national prestige and thinking about security. Developing countries have the same mindset. It's just that they're more focused on how does this benefit our immediate needs. And I think with all the trends that we're talking about, sustainable development goals and the role of different technology to help countries reach that, um, countries are seeing that space has a role to play on that. Um, some areas like, for instance, climate change, we know that of the um, of the 52 essential climate variables, that is the measurements that we use to detect climate change, I think half of them can only be measured coming from space. And so these countries are starting to say, we need to have our own data sources, we need to have our own independence. And also maybe this is going to inspire our population to think more about science and technology. So prestige is always there, of course. Um, space is like a club and <laughs> and being a space actor shows a certain level of development. But I think um, it's not as much of a vanity project as it used to be, because today you have to really demonstrate every dollar that you get from space. You have to get returns on that. Um, it's not like back in the Apollo days where I think it was basically at all costs, we will win this space race. Today, you have to really make the case for space. And that's what these countries are trying to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's... Um... It, it's it's really fascinating. One of the uh, items you just touched on is about you know how things have kind of changed over time, right? With the space race uh, moving to something that looks very different today. When we look across the uh, the landscape of different countries uh, that are active in space, the European Space Agency has referred to four major phases of space research and exploration over time. Uh, and I thought it would be really helpful if you could give us an understanding of what those four phases have been uh, and uh, maybe describe them to us a little bit. Yeah, so th there's been there's been different characterizations about the eras of space. So in the American context, they usually talk about two eras of space, space 1.0 and space 2.0. But the European Space Agency broke it down into four eras. Basically, the first era of space, space 1.0, can be considered to be the early study of astronomy and even astrology. So we've had this, you know, uh, for a very, very long time. But space 2.0 came about with spacefaring nations engaging in the space race that led to the Apollo moon landing. So that was in the 1960s, the height of the Cold War. And then the third era, which is Space 3.0, came about with the conception of the International Space Station, which showed that we understood and valued space as the next frontier for cooperation and exploitation. And they now say that we're in the Space 4.0 era, which is a time when space is evolving from being the preserve of governments of a few spacefaring nations to a situation in where there is an increased number of diverse space actors around the world, including the emergence of private companies, participation with academia, industry, individual citizens, and, and this global interaction. So Space 4.0 represents the evolution of the space sector into this new area, characterized by this new playing field and it's actually unfolding through the interactions between different actors and I think what's really fascinating about the Oxford Space Initiative you know take an ecosystems framework approach to analyzing the space 4.0 era saying that 
it's really important to explore the diverse types of organizations, firms and agencies and their interdependencies and to explore, you know, what collaborations, partnerships look like and appreciate the shifts of purposes of different stakeholders. So that is how it's been characterized so far. But I and a couple of people, you know, who are interested in space ethics and space governance actually say that we are coming or emerging into the space 5.0 era, which is essentially the space ethics and governance era. And here we're really talking about, um, you know, when we talk about the diversification that we see in the space 4.0 era, what about the plurality and diversity of experiences? So, so who has been affected? Who have been the actors? And all those different eras have been driven by technological change, but really it's now the social dimensions that will drive the future of space. It's kind of like when we first had cars or airplanes or anything like that at the beginning it was all technological but when it diversified and everybody could have that you now had to start thinking about okay what does liability look like you know who gets hurt or or who is affected by these technological changes so i would say that we're now approaching the space 5.0 era but um i'm probably one of the few people that's saying that most people are still talking about the space 4.0 era Great. And to get maybe a little bit more flavor on that space 4.0, and then I think we're going to start talking more about some 5.0 issues uh, over the next few minutes. Um, Is it, you know, my my naive assumption is that the 4.0 era is sort of enabled by, you know, lower barriers to entry, essentially lower costs for deploying certain technologies, which makes me wonder, when you talked about the government of Philippines, you know, having a budget of of $10 million per year for space exploration, what are the kind of uh, services and activities that uh, that governments or private actors uh, can take advantage of for those relatively low cost entry points? Yeah, so I mean, those, those low entry points are basically focused on capacity building, you know, things like working on astronomy, because that's focused on the ground, and you just need telescopes and things like that. Um, Now that we've had miniaturization and off the shelf technology, um, universities can build CubeSats for, you know, an order of magnitude, um, lower cost than they used to be able to. And now with these multiple launches that you can get, you know, ride shares on a launch, you know, you can, you can easily get your, your cheap asset up into space. So I think on these lower end missions is basically doing that using off the shelf technology and trying to just tinker around and figure out what you can do. And then of course, data analytics is a big part of it. So how do we spur the 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 downstream economy? So not so much about having assets in space, but once the assets are there, how do you utilize the data and create industry and create innovations out of that data? And I think the, the question is that sometimes you know, it feels like you need an asset in space to be an actual space actor and to be part of the governance discussions, for instance. But I think uh, a lot of the work around applications is really important because we do have a lot of assets up in space right now. And the question is, what do we do and how do we leverage all the things that we already have? So that's what the lower end budgets are basically um, focused on. And that's what a lot of the entrepreneurial work and innovations is around, you know, leveraging that data and creating new products and services out of them. 
Yeah, that's great. I love the idea that you can get a ride share into space. Um, I, I guess, you know, this was, we're recording on July 14th and, you know, Richard Branson just did um, a space flight into, I think, lower earth orbit. Um, I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong to me, but um, yeah, the idea that it's just getting more and more possible for maybe not the ordinary person at this point, but for, you know, individuals and relatively small organizations to, as you say, launch a cube satellite uh, as part of a mission up on a rocket. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, um, it's, it's interesting because this mantra of space for the benefit of all mankind or all humanity has been going on for a long time, but it's had a lot of challenges because the reality is, is space actually open for all? At the end of the day, yes, we now have opened up to the private sector, to developing countries, to universities, but the military is still one of the most significant users of space. And space is seen as a domain and a warfighting domain. I mean, space forces have been created to protect those assets. So it's still, it's still a contested environment, which essentially makes it challenging because you can't just do, you know, you even though people call it the wild, wild west, it's really only the powerful that can do whatever they want. The rest of the people actually have a lot of constraints on what they can actually do. So is space really for all? Well, that's the goal. Um, but, you know, with this Richard Branson flight, it's really interesting if you see the way the press has actually um, has actually characterized it as basically an ego trip of billionaires. And so that's very far from saying that this is something that is for the benefit of humanity, if people think it's just an ego trip. Yeah. Well, I'm very curious. I mean, this is deviating from our, our planned line of questioning, but I'm really curious how you uh, how you see a trip like that. Um, and when you see headlines about, you know, maybe this is a big ego trip from a billionaire. Do you see it that way? Or how do you think about it? Absolutely not. I think that, I mean, Richard Branson's flight, this flight was 17 years in the making. And really what it, what it, if you see the inspirational aspect to it, that, you know, this was a tenacious goal. Um, this was an innovation. I think back in when the X prize was won, when Richard Branson first started doing this, it was, it was revolutionary to be able to, used the same vehicle to travel to space. I think it was within two weeks of each other. So it really goes to show what our possibilities are and what innovation can actually do. So I find it inspiring, but I understand people saying, I mean, these flights are going to be $250,000 a pop to spend two minutes up in weightlessness. And, you know, there are a lot of competing priorities. Richard Branson's flight, I think to have somebody go up with him, there was an auction and that flight cost $28 million. And so definitely people would say that this is an activity for the ultra rich and it's just a fanciful joyride and there are so many more pressing and important things to do on earth but I think the same thing was said about the Wright brothers who developed aviation back in the 1900s and I think even the New York Times probably poo-pooed what they did and essentially said this is not important and this is not going to do anything but look at how our society has been revolutionized by air transport maybe we're seeing the same thing right now with space whereby yes we're just talking about space tourism and we're talking about something that starts off for the rich but really it could revolutionize what we can actually do and galvanize a new generation of of innovation 
Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not so different from so many technologies that emerge as, you know, kind of playthings of certain people. I'm thinking about, you know, cell phones and cars. Back in the day, my, I had a, a wealthy friend who had a bag cell phone in their car, and we all thought it was <laughs> the craziest, coolest thing. And now it's the most mundane thing uh, that, that there could be. Exactly. Exactly. So we've been talking mostly about sort of space 4.0 concepts, but you mentioned earlier this concept of space 5.0, which I take to mean, uh, and, and you'll certainly elaborate on it, but, you know, wrestling with some of the societal and legal and ethical challenges associated with um, what you might call the democratization of space. I guess that's what we were just talking about. So when you think about this new era of space that we may be entering into, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, that you've seen or that you expect to see with all these new players being involved? Yeah, so, I mean, the challenge of democratization is suddenly you have to think about inclusion and you have to think about who should be at the table for decision-making, right? And the complexity with decision-making for space is that you have different capacities. And so not everyone has the capacity to be able to engage. So you have to find this balance of saying, yes, we're open, but at the same time, decisions have to be made. I think at the beginning of space governance, so when the space laws were developed in the 1950s and 60s, of course, there were only two major actors and maybe 20 countries sitting around the table to develop the space law treaties that were developed in the 1950s and 60s. Now you have, I think, over 110 signatories to the Outer Space Treaty. You have over 90 members of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space at the United Nations. And they're basically politically gridlocked. And space, you know, even though we have this utopian notions of space that like, you know, when people think about Star Trek and they think about utopian visions of us living together and working in space, they forget that really it's just a reflection of the geopolitics on Earth. And so we have to um, we have to be more realist in our thinking that this is a new era where there are a lot of things at stake. So, for instance, one of the big governance topics is what we do about space resources. So the issue is that, for instance, if we find water on the moon, we can break that down into hydrogen and oxygen, and the hydrogen can be used for fuel, and the oxygen can be used to breathe. Now, if mankind is really going to become a multi-planetary species, and we're going to be living and working in space, those resources are going to be limited resources. And the question of ownership now comes up. To whom do they belong when this is supposed to be something that belongs to all of humanity? And, you know, of course, the, the way human beings act is first come, first serve, which means it's all always going to be the rich and powerful who are going to be the first people that get there. So we have this big issue now with this democratization is, yes, it's here, but how are you going to now actually implement that on a governance standpoint? And then secondly, when we look at the issue of environmentalism here on Earth and how um, unparalleled growth has basically degraded our environment, are we going to take that same mentality to space? Because the space domain is not really seen as an environment to be protected or that has intrinsic value in itself. And so one of the other space governance issues we really have to think about is how are we going to take sustainable development principles into the development of the space domain? 
Yeah, that's so many interesting topics there. And I, I would just, you know, point listeners to to your body of work. And we'll have a link, of course, to your webpage in the show notes. Uh, and also to some previous conversations we've had on the show. We had Danielle Wood from MIT a few months ago. And we also had Alex Gilbert from the Colorado School of Mines talking about some of these same space resource management issues. Uh, and they're just so fascinating. So we're touching on all sorts of things in this conversation, and I want to uh, take us into a completely different direction now, which is a, a question that goes back to my college days. Actually, when I was in college at Wesleyan University, I studied music with a composer named Anthony Braxton, um, who uh, who's a very avant-garde composer, some pretty far-out stuff. He was often referred to as an Afrofuturist. So, for example, one of his well-known pieces was written for four orchestras. Uh, on four different planets. Um, but there are other examples of, you know, Afrofuturist artists. George Clinton is maybe one of the best known ones. Sun Ra is another very well known one. And so I'm just really curious to ask you about your reflections on the role that African and African American artists have played uh, in just like developing the concept and the notion of space, whether for Africans or for the African diaspora. Yeah, so this is such a fascinating question. And I really only came across this term Afrofuturism when I moved to the United States. I came here from Canada. I'd never heard of this concept. And the interesting thing is I started seeing the division between Afrofuturism and African Futurism. So the distinction here is that Afrofuturism, even though it's talking about the black experience and putting the black race into visions of the future, it still has a very Western centralization. So it still centers Western ideals. And so I really relate to this concept of African futurism, which is basically looking at the others, you know, outside of the West and what it means to really place yourself in the future when you're not central to making those visions of the future. And it's really fascinating. At Arizona State University, we just hired one of the leading thinkers in African futurism. Um, I don't know if you've heard of or, um, Nnedi Okarafor. And she, uh, she has just joined the Interplanetary Initiative at Arizona State University. So we're really excited about, you know, really taking these concepts of alternate futures and what the future looks like and bringing in the perspective of the other and saying that by showing different visions of the future in somewhere that you would never expect people to be, it will be easier to imagine us being able to actually work together in the present um, because we can actually put different people in our imaginaries. And so I think, you know, I think since I've been here in America also with with everything that happened with the Black Panther and 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 the social unrest and all the movements that we've had, it's really put front and center in this Space 5.0 era about the need to be inclusive and about the need to let everyone be able to imagine what the future could look like for them. So I think it's really, I would, I would tell people that they should think of alternate visions of the future, and especially space people who love to talk about Star Trek and Star Wars, but not most people around the world haven't grown up on that version of science fiction. And I think science fiction should probably be broadened so that different people can imagine themselves in the future. 
Yeah, that is so cool. And um, I, I would love to learn more about um, the, the incoming professor that you mentioned and also the notion of, of African futurism. There's one artist that I know of um, named Mamansani, uh, who is an organist from Ghana who has a lot of space-themed uh, musical work, but he's the only one that comes immediately to mind. But it's interesting because I was watching a lot of these videos about, um, you know, how in pop culture, you know, artists such as Missy Elliott or Janelle Monet really have used these sci-fi concepts, um, you know, in hip hop to basically reimagine what being, say, a black woman who is powerful and who can influence the future, you know, what that actually looks like. And space is really a concept that is used to denote that. So I think it's really interesting and fascinating because the black woman is really the last person that you think of when you think about space and when you think of all these kind of sci-fi things. So them centering that concept and using art and 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 space to be a very visual feature i think is really exciting and inspiring yeah i totally agree and it actually makes me think of um of the recent hbo miniseries uh watchmen in which regina king plays a central role in a very sci-fi world and i i won't give away the ending but um there is a significant turn of events at the end uh that uh, very much uh plays into what we're talking about right now so just one more question to me before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is, you know, very much moving from the sublime uh, to the mundane. Um, when you look at the Biden administration, uh, the, the early uh, months of the Biden administration, are there any major early steps that you've seen out of the administration that you think are particularly interesting that you would want to highlight for our listeners? I think what we've seen early on is basically not moving too far from what the Trump administration did. I mean, the Trump administration, for all its for all its controversy in the space world, they really did a lot. It was very significant, all the initiatives that the administration put in place. So it's really just seeing how much of those initiatives are going to um, be fruitful moving forwards. Um, it's been clear that one of the areas where um, under the Trump administration, it, there wasn't that much credence given to was kind of climate science and earth science work. And in this new administration, obviously, that is going to be a priority and um, because climate change is, is one of the big ticket agenda items of the Biden administration. So I think we're going to see a lot more with respect to that. It's very interesting that the Space Council is still in existence. That's something that Trump brought in. And I think is really important because we do need these interagency processes. For too long, different people kind of operate in silos and um, space is a very you know, it, it's, you know, people are polarized in, in the things that they think is important. So ensuring that we have this high level, I think it's the vice president that would be leading that is is super important to ensure that the continuity kind of happens. Um, with respect to some of the politically motivated timelines that the Trump administration had, for instance, such as the Artemis program, which is the next moon landing of humans um, taking the first woman and the next man to space, that was supposed to be by 
2024. And that was a very rushed timeline. So I think we're going to see in this new administration that we're not going to meet that timeline and things are going to be slowed down a little bit, which is probably a good thing because we have so many issues right now from a governance standpoint with so many differing perspectives internationally that I think it's probably a good idea that we don't take a race mentality and really slow down and think about how can we evolve the the governance regime in a way that is inclusive and, and internationally focused rather than the very nationalistic perspective that the Trump administration took. So I'm hoping that moving forward, we're going to, um, while the U.S. is still going to look to be a leader, um, especially in areas such as space situational awareness, space traffic management, which is having this better understanding of what the space environment looks like, that as we move along, we will say that we should not just have a nationalistic governance approach, but carry along the international community. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense and definitely dovetails with many of the issues that we've talked about today uh, and the emerging space governance challenges uh, and opportunities that we've got ahead of us. So um, to maybe Aganaba, thank you again so much for joining us today on the show. This has been just a really fun, fascinating conversation. And now we're going to close it out with our last question, our top of the stack question, asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard, even if it's tangentially related to uh, to our subject matter. Uh, and I'll just start by reiterating my musical recommendations for the day, which are um, Anthony Braxton uh, and Sun Ra and Maman Sani. Uh, three really amazing, really different artists um, exploring different notions of uh, of the future in their work and, and space in their work. Um, and uh, some of it's pretty wild, uh, but some of it's also pretty great. So I hope uh, if you haven't checked out those artists before that you'll do so. Uh, but how about you, Timmy? What's on the top of your stack? So I just um, was sent a book called Losing the Sky by Professor Andy Lawrence, who's based in the United Kingdom. And it's basically, I don't know if your audience know about this um, issue that's going on right now about mega constellations. So a lot of the the space 4.0 era is driven by um, the launching of thousands of satellites, miniature satellites for telecommunications purposes. And the astronomy community are up in arms about this because they believe that we're losing the right to the night sky because you can now see all these thousands of satellites and we no longer have dark skies. And actually by the end of the decade, it's expected that there's going to be over 100,000 satellites launched. So, so really they're saying that this is this basic human right to a dark sky is being lost, but there's a fight between the right to internet access because from a sustainable development standpoint, people believe that everyone should have internet access. So we have these two competing, you know, uses of space, and of course there's no hierarchy in the use of space. So how do we balance these competing interests about how these various actors should operate in space? And I think this just symbolizes the problem we have in space governance now with this multiplicity of actors. The fact that we now have to balance interests, we now have to talk more and bring people to the table. So this book, Losing the Sky, really puts an astronomer's perspective as to why, you know, unparalleled growth of, of satellites may not be for the benefit of humanity, even though the usage seems to be something that is beneficial. So that's a really interesting read for anyone who's interested in a current issue of space governance. 
Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. Uh, just like pretty much everything else that we've talked about today. Uh, so once again, uh, Timmy Aganova from Arizona State University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.